Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsradio.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 AM and 1039 FM HD 2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Ross. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Ross. Coming up on today's show, texting while driving may affect insurance rates. Moving forward, ICE will track license plates around the United States. Does listening to video game soundtracks help you focus on work? And 50 Cent has made millions from Bitcoin. And in Profiles in IT, it's Michael Stonebreaker, the father of big data. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Oh, thank God. He was on the verge of getting fired. He was. He did it just on time. We got an email from Azra in Fredericksburg. Dear Tech Talk, I recently changed the password on my MacBook Air. I also changed the password on my email accounts and everything else because I wasn't going to update everything. But now, whenever I reboot my, my MacBook, I've got to log on to Keychain. And, uh, you know, and uh, it initially I had to log on it over and over and over again. And finally, I figured out what password to put into it. And now it only comes up once whenever I reboot the machine. But I just as soon not have this Keychain password screen come up at all. How can I get rid of that keychain password screen? Okay, let's let's give a little bit of basics on the Mac computer here, Azra. After you reset your after you, as an administrator, when you reset the password on your on your Mac operating system, uh, at that time it usually will ask you, "Do you want to update the keychain password?" And they'll make the keychain password the same as the password that you're using to authenticate yourself when you log into your computer. Now, if you don't take the option of changing your keychain password at that time, then every time you reboot your machine, reboot it from scratch, the keychain password uh, doesn't have the correct, you know, you log into with your new credential, and then you try to log into keychain with your new credential, and of course it doesn't work. So then you have to put in the old password. So you can easily, since you have apparently actually have the old password because you can log on to Keychain once and it doesn't come back. That's really good news. You can actually go into what they call key, the Keychain Access app, which is in the Utilities folder of your Applications folder. And then from the list of Keychains on the left, select Login. And then from the Edit menu in the menu bar, click Change Passwords for Keychain Login. Now, you have to enter in your old password first, and then you and then you and then you enter in the uh, the new password and then you enter uh, you know then you verify the new password again and then you click then you enter click okay and then your keychain password is done now you should make the new password the same as your login credential password when you're logging into your laptop so that way you log into the laptop with your new password it automatically passes that password to keychain and you'll never see the keychain login screen again that will solve your problem very easily done now if you don't have your old password which was the situation that many people have you frequently you can use your apple id and password to log into keychain and then you can change the password there that is one way to do that and if that fails you can create a new login keychain using your administrative account. So you can go in there and you can create a new keychain. You know, just get rid of the old one, create a new keychain. Now, the trouble is that the new keychain will have no passwords stored in it. So you'll have to put in all the, as you, as you need services and have to put in passwords, you'll have to put in all the passwords. You see what keychain does? It stores all the passwords that you need for all the service that you that you bring up so you don't have to keep logging in and logging in and logging in. It, it, it puts them in an encrypted vault. And so with Keychain, if you, if you have a password stored into Keychain, you actually don't have to enter in the password when it's requested. It just pulls it out of the Keychain uh, password vault, 
pops it in, and then you're you're good to go. And you only have to remember one password, then the keychain password. So if you get a new keychain, you're going to have to remember all those other passwords because you're going to have to reset them again. It was a very good question, and it's a frequent problem that people have with their with their uh, with their MacBooks. We got an email from Jim in Bowie, dear Tech Talk. I enjoyed your shows about the cord cutting process. Based on your recommendations, I recently bought Tableau with four tuners. I put an antenna in the attic. Then I got a Roku stick for the TV. Everything works perfectly. I've got great over-the-air television. I'm just about ready to cancel my cable TV. It's just, (laughs) it couldn't be better. But now I would like to also look at my over-the-air television when I'm at when I'm away from the home. So I need to use Tableau Connect. Now Tableau Connect requires that you have to do something to your router, and I'm really not quite sure how to how to configure the router. Could you give me some hints on doing that? Okay, Jim. What what uh, Tableau Connect requires if you want to look at it from outside of that? You actually have to. Um, you have to map some ports in your router where you map a, a port, a, a request comes in to the router, and it's mapped to your Tableau device, so that particular port goes straight to the Tableau device. Now, let me explain, just let me give it a little aside. What is What exactly is a port? It's actually part of the address system. You see, think of it, uh, each piece of software in your computer has a number associated with it, and, that, and if that number's called up, that piece of software opens up. Think of it, uh, I guess you could you could think of this addressing system like if you had a, a hotel. The, the the street address of the hotel would be the IP address. So so you send a package to the hotel and it goes to the to the lobby. The problem is you need to know what room to take the package to. So the room at the hotel is equivalent to the port address. So every piece of software in your computer, and you you use a, your computer's a lot of Software rooms has a port, and what you want to do is you've got to take these ports and you've got to manage the ports as they come in. So it turns out that the Tableau uses sends in signals to port 2108, TCP ports, and you have to take and you have to map that port to port 1887, and they also use another port, 2180, and you've got to map that port to port 80. So the first thing you've got to do is you've got to figure out what's the IP address of your Tableau device. And um, once you've figured that out, you want to make certain that that IP address stays the same. So you need to go into the uh, distribution of IP addresses, and then uh, you go to advanced, go to distribution of IP addresses, and then you basically make the IP address assigned to Tableau, just say set up, click on static IP address. That means it always has that same IP address. So that way you can map to that particular IP address and it's never going to change. Then you go to port forwarding, click port forwarding on your router after you've logged into your router. Let's see, you've got a Verizon router. So the address of your router is is 192.168.1.1. That's the, that's kind of the standard generic router. So that you go there, put in the, put in the username. Usually it's pass. Usually it's admin, and then put in your password and you log into the router. Then you go to port forwarding. Bring up port forwarding. You got to click the advanced button because you you have a different destination port. So you simply forward 2108, and then the destination port would be 8087, and then you save that. Rule. Then you go to the next rule, 2180, and then the destination port is 80. Save that, and now you're done. And so it takes uh, it takes about 10 minutes to do this thing. It's a little complicated to listen to that on the over the air, but 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 it will be posted to the uh, the entire description of that will be posted to the uh, to the to the Tech Talk Online webpage. Uh, it may be even uh, probably tomorrow or Monday. That is very convenient. I set up the same thing for my computer, and I can I can watch over the air television anywhere. In fact, I I watch over the air television down at the bay. It's very it's mm-hmm. it's very Implied very convenient. Yeah, it is. But I have to say, I I used to have two routers at home. I had I I had I bought I bought a new router and I had the Verizon router and I cascaded them together, which I thought was really great. And then when I needed and I had the tablet hooked to the second router so I through the through the cascaded router so it was a little bit more complicated to get the ports to pass through the first router and then be forwarded in the second router but what happened when I did that all of a sudden 
the bandwidth to the second router really slowed down, and I had trouble maintaining much bandwidth of the second router. I think that port forwarding arrangement where I was cascading two, two routers together created a problem. So I ended up getting rid of the second router, hooking my Tableau to the first router, and, and doing the same kind of port forwarding that I just described a minute ago, and now my bandwidth problem is gone. But I tell you, I love Tableau. It's really working out well. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Search. My wife and I use Facebook to keep up with friends and family, especially photos. We don't like to respond to anything much on Facebook because it's just too public. We email or iMessage or, you know, call privately. Now, the Facebook routinely updates, though, and there are huge files. The last one was 295 megabytes. And after a while, it seems like we're just going to run out of memory if they keep downloading 295 megabytes every time, every time they do the um, the upload. What you know? How much memory does this thing really use? I mean, is this a problem or is it something I just shouldn't even worry about? Thanks for having Tech Talk on the air. Really like this show and get lots of good information from your program, Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, update files typically replace files that are on your iPhone. They're just they just don't add up cumulatively. They don't they just don't keep accumulating. Otherwise, you'd just be eating up memory all the time. Now you can check how much memory all the applications use in your iPhone. You go to settings and then click on general and then click on iPhone storage. And then it goes through all your applications and it uh, lists them uh in order of how much memory they use with the ones that use the most memory, the, the most memory are listed first. And so you can look at them all. So, for instance, in my case, mail was the largest application. I got about 4 gigabytes of storage used by mail. My second one was photos. I got about 2.8 gigabytes used for photos. Facebook, it turned out, was sixth on the list with 414 megabytes. So I'm suspecting that your Facebook's not going not gonna to be much different than mine, around 400 megabytes. So that last update of 295 megabytes was just basically replacing some of the files in your, you know, in your Facebook file is going to stay about the same. I, I think if you've got a lot of, you know, a lot of pictures there and, you know, you've got a lot of friends and you're storing pictures, it may be a little bit more, but it's probably not going to be much more than 400 megabytes. So I don't think it's a problem, but you can take a look at it quite easily. We got an email from Keith in Baltimore. Dear Doc and Jim, how can I check where my PC, whether my PC or phone is protected from Meltdown Inspector? Remember this Meltdown Inspector. This was this uh, this flaw that was discovered by Google in the Intel chip. It was a flaw relating to what they call predictive execution where it would do an execution in advance in anticipation of what it thought you needed. And it turned out that the data that was part of the predictive execution was actually vulnerable to being detected. And that was a very serious security flaw. And because now there's more, as uh, Keith said, there's now malware in the wild. And I'm a little bit worried that, you know, I may get infected. Love the show, Keith, in Baltimore. Well, uh, even if you've installed patches from your Windows update, your PC may not be completely protected from uh, Meltdown Inspector CPU flaws. To fully protect against Meltdown Inspector, you need to install a BIOS update from the PC manufacturer, as well as various software patches from uh, from you know the operating system, like the Microsoft operating system or the Apple operating system. Now these uh, these patches. Um, uh, must contain new updates um, from Intel or AMD. These are updates to the to the microcode that will in order to protect against these attacks. Now, unfortunately, these updates are not distributed with the Windows update. For instance, on the Windows update, you 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 will get. The only updates that are distributed with the Windows update would be for Microsoft Surface. Any other piece of hardware you've got, it's not going to be distributed by Microsoft. You'll just get the Microsoft operating system update, but not the hardware update. Now, that's compounded by the problem that on January 22nd, Intel announced that it would stop deploying the current firmware updates because they were unstable. And they cause your computer to reboot. So Intel is recommending that you do not install any of the firmware updates that they had released until they fix it. Huh. So that means we're going to have a little bit of vulnerability going on here. So 
You can check whether your laptop is vulnerable. A Gibson Research Corporation is something called the Inspectra Tool. So you just simply can Google Gibson Research Corporation Inspectra, I-N-S-P-E-C-T-R-E, Inspectra, and you'll bring up a tool that you can download, and then it will scan your system to see if you're vulnerable. So, for instance, um, I'm, in my case, I know that I have not given, I've not provi- done the BIOS update for my computer because I'm waiting for the, uh, I'm waiting for a stable BIOS update. But I have done the patches that Microsoft has released. So then I would have expected that I would be protected against Meltdown, but not Spectra. Meltdown, you can do it with operating system patches, but Spectra. You've got to have Spectre. You've got to have the uh, BIOS update. So I, d- I downloaded the Gibson tool in Spectre, in Spectre and uh, it, sure enough, it showed me that um, I was not vulnerable to Meltdown, but that I was vulnerable to Spectre, as I thought. But it said my, my, uh, my operating speed is good. So the, the, the one patch that I did didn't slow me down. So that was a good result, and that's what I expected. So you can actually go to the Gibson Tool Inspector, and you can run this test yourself. We got an email from Hawk in Bowie, Maryland. Dear Doc and Jim, I use Facebook uploads to, to keep all my pictures. That's really a bad storage yeah. method. Um, unfortunately, Facebook only uploads low-resolution images. Is there any way that I can upload photos in high-resolution? That would allow my family to copy and download the pictures for printing. Thanks for a great show, Hawk and Bowie. That's actually a pretty good, uh, pretty good question because I think a lot of people, unfortunately, use Facebook to store all their images. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend that at all. By default... When you upload an image to Facebook from your phone, it's uploaded as a low-resolution file. Here's the good news, Hawk. You can actually change that default. Now, here's how you do it. On an iPhone, you want to open up the Facebook app. Open up the Facebook app on your iPhone. Go to Options. That's going to be there's in the lower right-hand corner. Click on that. You'll get an option screen. Select Settings, and then select Account Settings, and then select Videos and Photos, and at that point, you can turn on both upload, both high-definition upload switches. That would be high-definition video as well as high-definition pictures. And then you're set. And then the resolution which is uploaded is the same resolution that's on your phone, which means your friends and family can save those pictures and print them, which actually it's a great way for sharing high-res photos. Not a bad idea. Now, on the Android phone, it's a little bit different. You open up the Facebook app, you go to the Options screen, and then under Help and Settings, you select App Settings. And at that on that screen, you simply toggle the upload switches for high-definition photos and high-definition videos. So that, that will solve your problem. You'll get high-resolution photos up there. However... I don't recommend that you use Facebook to store your photos. You may lose them all if somebody ever hijacks your account. <laughs> and that is possible yeah. on Facebook. You, you could get your account hijacked and you'd, you'd have they could you'd, you'd have no access to your pictures at all and they'd just be gone. I'd recommend you take and upload all your photos to a, to an account on the cloud if you don't want to keep them on your on your computer. Right now you've got iCloud, Google Drive or OneDrive by Microsoft. Um that's actually a pretty good way to do that. I actually use all three of those cloud services. Plus, I have an external hard drive. You can buy an external hard drive, like a two terabyte external hard drive for around sixty dollars. Hmm. It's a USB hard drive. Just plug it into your computer, copy all your pictures right onto that external hard drive, and then you've got it. But remember, pictures have to be located two places to really consider them to be backed up because you're backing up the primary storage with a secondary storage. So if you've got them on your iPhone or your laptop, that's one place. You've got your external hard drive, that's another place. You've got a cloud, that's another place. I use all three because I don't want to lose any pictures. So enjoy enjoy your Facebooking and your high-resolution pictures. We got an email from Irene in Arlington, Texas. Dear Doc and Jim, I heard that you can get free software from the IRS to file your taxes. Is that true? How can I get it? Enjoy the podcast, Irene, in Arlington, Texas. Well, actually, Irene, if you earn less than $66,000, there is an official, truly free method. It's called the IRS Free File. 
There's a partnership between the IRS and several different tax preparation companies that offers free software for working out and filing your taxes online. Companies like TurboTax and H&R Block are there. They offer free versions if you meet the conditions. You want to go to the free software offers on the official IRS website. And that uh, the, the link here is a little bit complicated, but I would just... I've got the. I'll post the link on Monday to the on the show's uh, web on the Tech Talk Radio website, but you can simply Google if you want to just get it directly. Just Google "free software offers IRS" and it'll take you right to that uh, right to that link. You'll see on that page that there are twelve different options with different qualifying requirements. All of these programs are free for those who qualify. Which of these options you use depends on your financial situation. The most universal offering is H&R Block, which offers federal and state taxes for free to anyone between 17 and 50 who earns less than $66,000. Start there if that describes you. Otherwise, check out the other options. That's actually a pretty good option for people. Mm-hmm. Get this free free taxes if they, if they fit the conditions. We got an email from John in Chesapeake, Virginia. Dear Doc and Jim, my Internet is very, very slow. It used to be much faster. I'd like to restore that speed. What, what can I do? Love the show, John in Chesapeake, Virginia. Well, John, before troubleshooting, it's worth running a speed test to see uh, to see whether you uh, th- whether it really is slow and it's slower than it should be. You can go to speedtest.net. That would be one one particular check, and you could actually uh, do, run a speed check there. You'll have an upload speed and a download speed. When you do the speed check, make certain that you're not streaming anything. Turn off any Netflix streaming. You know, if you're downloading any videos, you know, within in these peer-to-peer networks, anything like that. Just you don't want to be downloading anything to to get the real speed, and then you can test it out and you can compare the measured speed against what the expected speed is that you're paying for. Now, remember, when they sell you say 75 megabits per second. That's the maximum speed. They're not guaranteeing 75 megabits per second. So if you log on, say, during peak time, say in the evening or on, or on say, a Sunday afternoon or a, or a Saturday afternoon, you may get less than the peak because all your neighbors are on it mm-hmm. and you're sharing that, uh, that segment with them. And so it'll drop a bit. But if you log on, say, at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night, you'll probably get peak speed. So you want to check that. And if your speed is significantly lower than it should be after you've done the check, here are a few things you can do. The first thing you do is reboot your router and your modem. That's always that's always Turn it off, turn it back turn, on. Turn it off, turn it back on, because it, it turns out that you those things can get uh the buffers can get filled, they can they can get they can get locked into an odd state if you if you're printing things or if you or if somebody on your network's you know downloading a lot of stuff and it just overwhelms the, the modem and router so you just want to reboot the the modem and router now actually what I have I've got I've got a a a plug which is connected to my Wi-Fi on the modem and router and I can I can turn it off from my cell phone cuz I I don't like to have to walk into the next room and bend over and pull out the plug oh that's a that's whole just, lot of effort. That is just way, oh way, way God. too much effort. I like to just sit there in the easy chair and, un- and unplug it and then plug it back in again. And the funny thing is you're the most unlazy person <laughs> I know, but you have this this house, the house of, for slackers. Everything. Everything is on your phone. Everything is Slacker on the phone. Slacker home. Everything is on the phone. Yeah, I don't... I don't even like to go to the to the wall to turn off the lights. I like to just turn off the lights with my cell Have phone. you hooked up your Roomba so it can bring you drinks and food? That'll be the next thing. Okay, good. That'll be the next thing. I think what I need is like maybe a little train that goes around the house. I do that's ha- not terribly high tech. No, I know, but I... I think that's your phone that's ringing, by the way. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, is my, it is my phone. Mute your phone. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, yeah. Let me, let, me mute, <laughs> let me mute this bad boy. Okay, now... After you've rebooted your router and turned it back on, check the speed. If the speed is still too low, then it may be that you've got a weak Wi-Fi signal because if you're connected to your router by Wi-Fi, uh, you know, it could be a weak signal. So I'd take your, if you've got a laptop, I would get close to your router to see if that makes a difference in speed. Now, uh, and there could be a few reasons why you uh, would have bad Wi-Fi connection. Now, particularly if you're, say, in a crowded uh, apartment complex, 
All your neighbors are on Wi-Fi, and they can be using the same channels that you're on, and that could really slow things down. Because on, um, you know, on uh, if you're at 2.4 gigahertz, you do not have very many, uh, very many, um, you know, you only have three channel, three non-overlapping channels actually, and um, and so you you're going to end up discovering that you're probably going to be on top of your neighbors and you're going to be sharing the bandwidth of one of those uh, channels. So I would recommend if you're in an apartment to go to a five to go to the yeah. five gigahertz window because you yeah you, you, you'll actually have two two uh, radios in your in your router. You'll have mm-hmm. one at two point four gigahertz, one at five point eight gigahertz. And just actually select when you go to the router configuration, just select the 5.8 gigahertz so you're always on 5.8 gigahertz. And then that has many, many more non-overlapping channels, yeah. and the and your router will automatically ju- jump to a channel that nobody's on, and I think that will solve your problem. I, I am the tech talk guinea pig for that. You yeah, talked me into yeah. that, and that worked is really it working? well. It works fantastically. And, of course, then you also have the, the tinfoil helmet idea that you oh, came up with, yes. right? Remember uh-huh, that, the, yes. the, the deflector thing? Is that, does that work? I didn't do that because okay. that would look stupid. I didn't need to. It's, yeah, it, that it's would working. Be. The 5.8 gig works just great. Now, if you've got real a large house and you've got kind of a kind of a dead spot wi-fi dead spot because if like if you wi-fi does not like to go through the metal ducting so if you're on the other side right. of your air conditioning system and you got all that ducting you may get a weak signal so you may why might want to might want to set up a wi-fi mesh system so like google sells a three unit mesh system you just set them up in the house they link together and then that will that will give you coverage over quite a large house Okay, that would be the second thing. Check your Wi-Fi signal and see if you've got any interference there. Now, you might also have a problem where you are saturating your connection. There may be somebody who's using a, a peer-to-peer to download movies and all uh, movies and um, all sorts of audio MP3s. And, you know, you get these peer-to-peer downloads, and you might be downloading, you know, it, it. these peer-to-peer systems just absorb all of the bandwidth. And you might be downloading 10 songs at once and uploading 10 songs at once. You mean like somebody in your basement doing this to you, somebody unbeknownst in the to you. That's right. That's, somebody, this has never happened to you, has it? This has happened to me when my son lived in the ah, house. there you go. Because he, he would turn on his computer... And he would set up a, uh, and he would set this thing up to, you know, to download all of these, um, you know, movies and songs and everything. And he would just leave it, and that thing would just soak up all the bandwidth. Like father, like son. That was just terrible. So, so what I did. So what you can do is you can actually set up. Now, what I did, I just went into and I just, I just blocked his MAC address. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. Well, I didn't want to have to walk down to the basement. But, so well, I, I, be, send Roomba down there. To, uh, Roomba doesn't so, do steps, though. So what I did in, in this case, I just I just knocked them off the network, and that <laughs> solved my problem. But they Tough have. Love. But they have something in the newer routers called quality of service. Mm. And so what you can do is because you you know the, these are you you know he was using a, a BitTorrent device to download all these songs and movies. And I and suppose I want to watch Netflix, so I could go into the quality of service settings, and I could say whenever you have a Netflix packet, it has higher priority than a BitTorrent packet, and so simply by adjusting the quality of service, you can be assured that the stuff you want will get through. Now I I didn't back when I had that problem, I didn't my router didn't have quality of service settings on it, so I just had to knock them off. But I think the new routers do, so you can adjust the quality of service. If you have some bandwidth hogs in your, in your, uh, you know, in your family, hogs. you know, I mean, there, there, there's always, yeah. a, there's always a bandwidth well, hog somewhere. It's the one who's not paying for it. That's, that's who it is. That's all, you know, it usually is the case. It's the one who doesn't care about the data cap. You right. Know? Exactly. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> I need a song. That's right. And now you, there, you also you there you might have a a, a faulty splitter because when they when the, when the cable comes into the house. And especially if you've got a whole bunch of TVs in the house, they do splitters, and they might split several times before it gets to your uh, to your uh, to your modem. And so there could be a bad splitter. And so it may. So if you if you want to do a little bit of diagnostics, you could actually go into where all that is done, and you could just get rid of the splitters and do a direct do a direct hookup with to your um, to your router to see whether that's the problem. Just the fact that you're splitting. Diminishes the signal right there, doesn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah, it diminishes the signal, and and not all splitters are equal. And so, I you could check that because then that that, that will eliminate a you know a service call if you if <laughs> they have to come out. And then, 
But if it, but if you go through all of this bag of tricks here and that still doesn't work, you call your internet service provider. And it could be that there's something wrong with the cable connection coming into the house. It could be there's something wrong with their equipment. They'll check it out. They may send somebody out to do it. So mm-hmm. those are all your options. And uh, you you should be able, in the middle of the night, get the maximum speed that they're selling you. And, you know, it's okay to go on the Internet at 3 a.m. Because nothing bad happens after there, 11 o'clock yeah, at no, night. Nothing, and and you, you can really go fast as you want. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Uh, we got an email from Alice in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I'm thinking about doing my banking online. However, I'm really not sure I can trust it. What's your opinion about online banking, Alice in Fairfax? Well, Alice, I do online banking all the time. I've done it for years. I've never had an incident. However, I follow some basic rules that are extremely important. There's always a but. Yeah, with my online banking account, I've got a very strong password, and I only use that password there. Mm-hmm. I don't, like, use that same password on my Facebook account, on my email account, on my Twitter account. It's a unique password only for my bank account. Secondly, I don't share the password with anybody. That's with a, that anybody. That should be kind of... With anybody. Rudimentary, I would think. Even if there's somebody close in the house, I don't share my password with them. No. Because I just don't trust other people's password security. Third thing I do, I use two-factor authentication. So every time I log into my bank account, it sends a text message to my phone with a with a six-digit code, and then I have to enter that six-digit code into the into the into the login screen in order to actually log on. Now that means that, that even if somebody gets my strong password, they can't log into my account unless they also have my cell phone. So that two-factor authentication is really important. The other thing I am very careful when I open up emails because yeah. there are a lot of emails that are, if I just don't open if if I don't know who sent it to me, I don't open the attachment. Yeah, I just delete agreed. It. Because there are a lot of emails, especially PDF files and picture files, and um, that actually will will install uh, um, um, you know keystroke loggers onto your onto your computer, mm-hmm. and then they start looking for passwords. So I don't do that. I also avoid all these phishing emails where they say, "Oh, this uh, we've just noticed some unusual activity on your bank yep. account. Would you please log into your bank account?" And just double check whether everything is okay. And then they give you some fake web page. You log in and you give them the password. Well, you know, any any email you get that is from something that you don't normally get. That's right. From, and you and you know you look at you look at the uh, the web address where it comes. Uh-huh. I mean, you can tell by the by the uh, the dot whatever. That's right. Right. You can. So it just takes a minute to, so to I, check I these just, things out. I never and I never log into anything using a link on an email. Yeah. Like if if somebody says you've got to check it, and I think it's legitimate, I will actually not use any link on the email. I'll go in and type in the actual adri- web address directly. So because you never know what's going to happen. And mm-hmm. the final thing is, I never ever ever. Do banking on a public computer? No, ever. No. When I'm traveling overseas, I don't do banking um, in the hotels because hotel Wi-Fi's are not secure. People are people like hack into Wi-Fi, especially five-star hotels internationally. You've got people that are there just trying to because they know there's get, money. They know there's money. They know their executives staying there, and so they're trying to. And so I, I never log into them. I never log in down at the business center at a hotel in my room at the hotel. I, at the airport, anywhere, I just don't do any public. I only log into my um, my my bank account when I'm at home with my computer on my Wi-Fi. Now, if I have to do banking and I am traveling, what I will do is I have a VPN on my cell phone, so I will implement my VPN, activate my VPN. And I will log into my bank account when I'm traveling using my cell phone, but only through a VPN. Mm-hmm. And and I and it's it's my cell phone, so the people aren't gonna aren't gonna get right. a, get a key logger on it. So, and I really don't even like to do that. But there are just times when I've got to make some transaction right. on the bank account, and I'm traveling, so I use my cell phone with a VPN. Well, and and the other thing, you make a good good point, even about your Wi-Fi at home. You should lock that down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Your Wi-Fi. You got to secure your network at home. You want to make sure you got a good password, and you want to, you know, you want a, you know, good strong password, so people aren't gonna, you know, you never know what your neighbors are up to. Nope. You got to really watch it. Well, listen, we love, love, love your emails. 
Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you immediately if it's an emergency, or we'll cover it on the next show. It is Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio. This is Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2. You can learn more about Stratford University and this program by going to stratford.edu. Scroll down to the bottom right of the page and look for the link to Tech Talk Radio. And you can watch us do the show. Download the Periscope app to your phone or other device, and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity, digital forensics and networking telecommunications careers now is the time to act stratford makes it easy turning your qualified experience into credits earned and if you're a vet they'll help you maximize your military benefits get complete details and register today at stratford.edu 18 it that's stratford.edu 18 it if it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Michael Stonebreaker. Michael Stonebreaker is widely regarded as father... Of big data. Michael was born October 11, 1943 in Milton, New Hampshire. He received a Bachelor of Science degree from Princeton in 1965 and got a Master's uh, from University of Michigan in 1967 and a Ph.D. from the University of Michigan in 1971. He joined, the UC, he joined UC Berkeley faculty as an assistant professor in 71. It was there that it is pioneering work on relational databases based on the work of Edward Codd. Now, Edward Codd was a theoretical database practitioner, and he realized that the way they were accessing data and querying the data was extremely inefficient. And so he proposed an entirely different way to actually access the data using something which at that time was uh, was very new, you know, structured query language where you joined the databases together with a common key. And when he proposed this original idea, people said it's just way too complicated. It'll take too much processing power. He got a lot of pushback on it. Uh, but it turned out that Michael Stonebreaker thought that this was an excellent idea, and he started writing a number of papers on on the application of Edward Codd's techniques. And he ended up, uh, while he was at UC Berkeley, developing, you know, databases that that were basic, that relational databases. This is what Edward Codd created. This is where you've got relate two da- two databases using an index. Relational databases. He he then began working on that, and he basically invented something called Ingress, which was internet internet interactive graphics and retrieval system to implement CODs, relational database ideas, commercially. Now, Ingress was a very successful company. It actually implemented the uh, relational database ideas extremely well, and it was a commercial success. Ingress was ultimately purchased by Computer Associates in 1994. Now, Michael Stonebreaker's rival was Larry Ellison, of course, the founder, co-founder, founder of Oracle Databases. Now, Larry Ellison was very good at copying the ideas that other people had developed. So Larry took the ideas that um, 
Michael Stonebreaker had been talking about out of Edward, the application of Edward Codd's relational database, and he applied them. And he founded Oracle, which was a competing database system. Now, it ran on DEC microcomputers instead of Unix. Everything that uh, Michael Stonebreaker done, all of his database stuff was running on Unix. And and um, and basically, Oracle simply ported over all those ideas and, and ran them on a DEC computer. Now, after he had developed that, because what Michael Stonebreaker did, he was an interesting academic. He would take an academic idea but he always felt that applying an academic idea in the marketplace as a commercial product actually gave a sense of reality to the academic research. So he always liked to take his ideas and put them into companies, test them, talk to real customers. So after he had uh, launched Ingress and sold it, he went back. He, he went back into the um, back into the uh, UC Berkeley, and everybody was trying to store images. Because you see, traditional databases would just like store numbers or store text things. But people were trying to store images. And they were trying to store CAD CAM files and images and bring up the images and organize the images. And it was just a nightmare. And then he got the idea that he says, maybe we could take a, a new database structure where we could have abstract data types. And you could have like numeric data. You could have text data. You could have graphic data. You could have photographs as data. You could, anything could be a data. It's an abstract data type. And then you would separate the data and the data types from the programming language. You'd keep it separate. So he went back and started thinking, talking about it, and people says, Michael, that's just too hard. That's too difficult. Nobody's going to want to do that. It's going to be the same the same pushback he was getting when he developed Ingress. So he said, okay, I must be on the right track. So he began to, he began to develop it. And he came up with Postgres, and he, uh, which, was a, um, which was this uh, data structure with abstract data types that also had a programming language based on, you know, the relational database model that he had, had earlier. And he, uh, he came up with Postgres, and he co- commercialized it as Montage, and Montage was eventually renamed Illustra, Illustra. And so then Illustra was launched in 1992, and it was ultimately bought by Informix and renamed the Informix Universal Server. Their first customer, by the way, was NASA. NASA had to store all these satellite images, huh. and they used this data structure with abstract data types to store all their satellite imagery. So uh, that was a was a huge a huge success instantly. Now, as you as you might expect, uh his nemesis copied everything that he had and and Oracle came out with the same day. Oracle Oracle copied the same thing. I mean, they shamelessly copied it all and commercialized it, and Ellison is is a master marketeer. So he actually probably achieved much more commercial success with his abstract uh, database, and, and Oracle was off to the races again with Michael Stonebreaker's ideas. In 2001, he left uh, UC Berkeley, and he moved to the second half of his career. Michael moved to the MIT Computer Science and Artificial uh, Laboratory there at um, MIT, SAIL, Computer science and uh, art, uh, computer science and artificial uh, intelligence laboratory, SAIL, where he was co-founder and he was co-director of the Intel Science and Technology Center for Big Data, and he started working on methods to you know to process big data, to set up data warehousing, to you know he had started looking at the computation speeds and fast transactions. So he started instead of working on data structures. As he had at UC Berkeley, he started working on how do you efficiently extract the information from the database and use it quickly. And so this is sort of the second half of, of his career. And as always, he would develop something and then he would would go out and um, you know and and commercialize it. So the first thing he worked on was the Aurora project, and he focused on data management for streaming data. You know, streaming data. And he used a new data model and a new query language. He co-founded stream-based systems to commercialize it in 2003. 
Then in 2005, he developed a, co- a column-oriented database, and by, de- by dividing and storing data in columns instead of rows, C-Store was able to p- perform input-output operations faster and get better compression ratios. So he took that idea, and in 2005, he co-founded a company called Vertica, to commercialize that technology. In 2006, he started Morpheus, which was a data integration system that relied on a collection of transforms to mediate between data sources. He was solving a problem where there was a lot of data stored in different formats. So how can you access all the data in one unified system? And he did it by transforming it. So he was solving another problem, and he launched another company to solve that problem, Morpheus. In 2009, he co-founded Gobi, a local search company based on ideas from Morpheus for people who would want to explore new things and to do th- to do in their free time. In 2007, Stonebreaker started HStore to provide very high throughput on transaction processing workloads, and he co-founded VoltDB to commercialize HStore. So you see, he takes something from the university and makes a product out of it. It's a it's a theme that he did. In 2013, he founded Tamir, T-A-M-R, to tackle the challenge of connecting and enriching diverse data at scale. And in Tamir, he started applying machine learning to analyze the data. On March of 2015, he was awarded the um, 2014 Turing Award for fundamental contributions to the concepts and practices underlying modern database systems. So there you go, Michael Stonebreaker, he was the father of big data, and I think he managed to navigate the two worlds of academia and business extremely well. Mm-hmm. Hope you're paying attention because what we just talked about could get you free lunch. There are free lunches, and we give them here on Tech Talk Radio. The pop quiz is coming mm-hmm. up next here on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2. You can follow us on Periscope and watch us do the show live on your device. Download the Periscope app and follow us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity, digital forensics and networking telecommunications careers now is the time to act stratford makes it easy turning your qualified experience into credits earned and if you're a vet they'll help you maximize your military benefits get complete details and register today at stratford.edu 18 it that's stratford.edu 18 it If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell. The security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Thanks for tuning in this Saturday morning. It is time for us to play the pop quiz. Your chance to trade knowledge for free food. In Profiles in IT today, we talked about Michael Stonebreaker, the father of big data. In 2014, Stonebreaker was given this prestigious award. Tell us what award that was. If you know the answer to today's question, please take this opportunity to pick up your phone and dial us now. If you're going from west to the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. 
Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. For those of you dedicated listeners in Canada, the number is 877-936-9333. And of course, the international line is 877-9-3639-333. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, standing by to take your calls, so dial now. So let's talk about the idea of the week. Okay. Now this idea came from Popular Science, and they said they, they were doing research on what kind of background music should you have while you're at work that would keep you going. And they discovered that the best background music while you were working would be a video game soundtrack. No kidding. <laughs> you know, That's like, crazy. Say like Super Mario. That's kooky. Okay, now this is the thing. First of all, when you listen to that, you want the music to help you focus. Now, the whole point of video game soundtracks is to stimulate your sensors, blend into the background, and help you focus on the task. And it gets you engaged. And it does it without distracting you. And they concluded after doing all this research that that was absolutely the best music to listen to huh. while you were working on a task. So you just turn on Super Mario and just go. That's pretty funny. But, but I'm thinking Super Mario might, you know, I might, I might want to have a longer loop of that because it's. Uh, I think it would get a little monotonous. I'm thinking so. So I may pick a different video game, but mm-hmm. I'm thinking that is not really a bad idea. I put a link out. You'll get a link to this whole article and all the research on it. So that is the unexpected idea of the week. ICE will be tracking license plates, uh, looking for. Illegal immigrants, and they're going to track them across the U.S. They just announced this. They're using a agency-wide, nationwide license plate recognition database. Huh. The system gives the agency access to billions of license plate records and new powers of real-time location tracking, raising significant concerns from civil libertarians. The data comes from Vigilant Solutions. It's a leading network for license plate recognition data. ICE is not seeking to build a license plate reader database. It will not collect license plate data. It's simply going to use this data and sift through it to see what's going on. And while it collects a few photos itself, Vigilant Solution has amassed a database of more than 2 billion license plate photos by using data from partners like the vehicle repossession agencies and other private groups. So they, as well as a lot of police cars have you know, cams on them that, that track license plate. And all that goes into into data. So they've got agreements with local law enforcement agencies that are collecting almost real-time data mm. as, as the police cars are driving around. This results in a massive vehicle tracking network generating as many as 100 million sightings per month, each tagged with the date, time, and GPS coordinates. So by simply looking for a license plate, getting a GPS coordinate, you can tell where somebody lives, you could go find them. And so wow. they're going to use that for tracking people down, and it's a double-edged sword. How much power do we want to give the government, and is that too much power for the benefit that society's getting? Ransomware attacks are less frequent. Malware Bytes did a study... And hackers are launching fewer ransomware attacks in the latter part of 2017. And that's the, 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 the drop-off started in August. Now, you know, ransomware is a software that can lock up your files, encrypt all your files, until, hackers, until you send the hackers ransom payments. There were some, uh, there were some uh, ransomware programs. One was called WannaCry that came out in May and did a lot of damage. Then there was another one called NotPetya. And that, that came out in June, and they just swept through hospitals, banks, and governments in several countries. But, by, but after July, the rate of ransomware infections dropped sharply, according to the report from Malware. And the trend continues, and it means that eventually there will be very little ransomware. So you might ask, what happened? What happened? Thank you. I ask. Thank you. <laughs> what happened was... People actually got smart, and they said, you know, if we back up our files to a backup, uh, the ransomware doesn't matter because we we got the files. Mm -hmm. So what happened was all this ransomware scared people to actually backing up. And so now, once people were backed up, you know, they go in ransomware attacks. Nobody's going to pay the ransom. They're just going to restore the files from the backup. And so the ransomware demands... We're not being 
lucrative for the hackers. Mm -hmm. So they just quit doing it. So the unintended good consequence of ransomware is that now people are using better better backup techniques to protect their data. Not a bad result. Not a bad result. Not a bad result. Texting while driving may affect insurance. This is rates. interesting. This this, this is this is going to happen, and and uh, arity, which is a unit of insurance, which is a unit of an insurance, uh, you know, a, a small a, a small <laughs> unit within all state, is tracking in car smartphone use, so that the company can either punish or reward drivers depending on how they use their phone while driving. Now, this is how the technology works. You download an app that's, that's required by the insurance company, and then that app tracks the smartphone's accelerometer and gyroscope to sense whether the device is being moved, likely if it's being held by the driver in his hand or whether it's lying flat on a surface. So if the, like the, or, and they can also tell whether the phone is unlocked. So if you pick up the phone to do navigation or something and not even texting – if you move it around, it's going to think you're texting. Ah, okay. That's what they do. They don't actually look at the text. They just look at the accelerometer and the gyroscope. Now, Allstate uh, may soon have this technology tr- linked to the consumer car insurance. In a, in a statement, Allstate described that, that this was a way to promote safe driving. Arity analyzed data from 160 million trips by hundreds of thousands of Allstate drivers. And they confirmed, the research confirmed that drivers who were playing with their phones were more dangerous. Mm-hmm. Arity then went a step further and used Allstate claims data to see how expensive the distracted driving is. It found that the most distracted drivers cost the insurance company 160% more than the least distracted drivers. Mm. So now they believe that if you twiddle with your smartphone, you're more likely to get in an accident. And so what they want to do is they want to reward people who don't play with their smartphone. And so this is then going to have an, an impact on rates. But that means that if you want to get the no texting discount, you're going to have to download the app and give the insurance company the right to look at your cell phone activity while you're driving. Right. Now, this is a problem for people that use navigation. Mm-hmm. So if you're using your cell phone for navigation, you're going to be well advised, if you're in this program, to get one of these phone mounts where you right. mount, mount the phone so you can see it for navigation, but you don't have to pick it up. I think this is probably not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I think this is probably one way to impact this whole driving deal. Farmers, I know, is working on a similar situation. Because I'm with farmers, and they were telling me that they're they're going to go do something just gonna, like they're, this. They're yes. going to do that. Yeah, it's it's, it's it not mandatory, but if you want the break, you have to. It's coming. Mm-hmm. Fifty Cent, you know the the rapper, made millions from Bitcoin. That's funny. Now, Fifty Cent had a gamble. What he did, and it paid off for him. This performer, you know, his real name, Fifty Cent's real name is Curtis James Jackson the Third. I can see why he changed it to 50 Cent, because that's not a good rapper no, name. 50 Cur- Cent's cool. Curtis James <laughs> Jackson III, he, had, he admitted that he even forgot that he owned this cryptocurrency. It turns out that he let fans purchase his album, The Animal Ambition, for a fraction of a Bitcoin in 2014. This was when Bitcoin was around $662. He made 700 Bitcoins in that sale, and he forgot about it. Since that time, Bitcoin went up to $19,000, and now it's back down to 11000 So his investment in Bitcoin is now between 7 and $8 million off of those sales back in 2014. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, My Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? 
Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 smart bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 special edition smart bed. Plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.